Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. I'm Molly Herford, author of four books on cycling, writer of all things fitness related, and lover of pretty much all things fitness related. And I'm Peter Glassford. I'm a cycling coach, a registered kinesiologist, and occasionally I race a bike moderately fast. Pretty fast. Quite yeah, fast, even. That's basically moderate. <laughs> Anyway, together we co-host the Consummate Athlete Podcast. If you're joining us for the first time, uh, welcome, and we hope you enjoy learning about all different types of sports from, oh my gosh, what, rock climbing to NASCAR to NFL to more normal endurance sports. Yeah, lots of stuff in there. Uh, Most recently we've done uh, obstacle course racing with Lindsay Webster. That was one of my favorites. I love Lindsay. Mm -hmm. Oh, also soccer with Lauren Sesselman. Yeah. Pretty yeah. sweet. And then even just some basic movement stuff, which I really enjoyed with Katie Bowman. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we've had some pretty high-end coaches who coach all different types of sports, like Dean Golich, who works, you know, whether that's motocross or NASCAR or uh, cyclists. So lots of stuff in the podcast. Hopefully you'll check that out over at consummateathlete.com. Um, we're also on the Facebook, if you look us up, for Consummate Athlete. Uh, and also, as always, we have to give a shout out to our uh, podcast network wide angle podium podium uh, that's wap is the short form you can find them on twitter and all over the place and they have a bunch of different shows most of them are cycling related so we're sort of the the dark horse uh sort of cycling related we do keep coming back to that but we do all sorts of sports most of them uh most of the shows on wide angle podium are are cycling related some really good ones some are more sort of casual um, some are more cyclocross, like the CX Hairs mm-hmm. uh, podcast, uh, and then there's there's a couple on there. So I encourage you to go over to Wide Angle Podium and check out our podcast partners. Um, yeah. Yeah. So last week's intro had Peter actually doing the intro from, where were you when you recorded that, Tucson? I don't know. It's been a crazy couple weeks. Yeah. Uh, we, we tried to do an intro while I was driving, which is sort of sketchy, but just on the phone. Um, and I was just so zoned out that I just let Molly handle the intros for, what was that one? I guess two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so last week was all you because I was sort of zoned out and in the middle of being at Cyclocross Worlds with the Aspire Racing Team. Yeah. So I did that. Where was I? I guess I was in... You were in Tucson by then. I was in a, a friend's laundry room in Tucson uh, between... I was busting five-hour rides. Uh, in a you can tell stand. we're living the dream when you can't really remember yeah, where you which, were. Where we are. But anyhow, we're at a Ontario cycling camp for Team Ontario, uh, development athletes. In so, California, not in Ontario. Right. Yeah. And not <laughs> Ontario, California, but in uh, beautiful Buellton near Solvang. California. Beautiful is sort of pushing it right now. It's been a pretty rainy Uh, few days. It's beautiful and green right now. That is true. It's pretty lush looking. Yeah. Yeah, so Peter was already pretty ready for the camp. He did a sweet strength training uh, session with Coach Clance up in Ontario before he came down here. He had some time in Tucson to train. Um, Yeah, I just ran a bunch. Actually, I had, I'm lying. I had three days to ride in Girona. Uh, so I had three days of base before this camp started up. Mm-hmm. Um, but otherwise, putting in some long runs and just long days in general, rushing around with uh, with Aspire Racing. I was with Ellen Noble when she got second in U23 Worlds for cyclocross. So I was right there when she crossed the line, and we were both crying and hugging, and it was awesome. So I'm so stoked for her. That mm-hmm. was a good culmination of the the crazy season of travel with them. Yeah, really exciting for Ellen, for sure. And actually, I, I mentioned this in the previous, in the podcast intro that I did for last week's mm-hmm. uh, episode, And but those two women's races at World Championships, Amazing. you can watch them on YouTube. Um, there's a couple different versions, If just sort of click around if they are blocked. Uh, on YouTube, I believe, still. Yeah. And you can check out those races, and the racing so is amazing. Back and forth, and really aggressive, really exciting. Um, so definitely, even if you're, you're not sure what cyclocross is or haven't watched it a ton or seen it at the highest level, the elite women's race yeah. is a hundred percent skip worth over watching. the men's race. Yeah. I forgot them. <laughs> um, Love those guys too. But the women's they race get enough was attention. Oh, so good. I actually like started just ball, almost bawling when Sankant actually won. She's just been so close for so many years. I mean, it was amazing to see Mariana Voss back. I'm so excited for her, like, coming back from her back injury that's kind of kept her out for the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. But to see Sana just finally get that title that she's been going for for so long was just... Yeah. Oh, yeah, really so exciting. good. So good. 
Yeah, really good racing. And yeah. I, I don't usually like watching bike racing, but I watched, <laughs> watched both those, and they were quite good. Yeah, so that's that's what happened last week. This week, we picked up 12 uh, Junior and U23 really fast kids from Ontario, and now we're, yeah, hanging out in Solvang and riding with them. I'm driving the van some of the days, but hopping in for, for some of the rides. There's only one other girl at camp right now. Um, so it's definitely a pretty high pace. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's good, and they're, they're fast, and they're recovered, and they're fresh out of the Canadian snow. So. Yeah, and definitely the first week of these camps is always funny because there's a bit of, like, just a bit of jockeying for position in the group, and, like, I think it takes a bit for everyone to get used to riding in a pack again, especially since half of them are mountain bikers, so they're just not used to really doing pack riding to begin with. Yeah, and I think we'll, we'll talk a bit about training camps and sort of blocks and base season and stuff mm-hmm. today we had a question about that and i think that'll apply to multiple sports the concepts are, are similar mm-hmm. um, but definitely that first week of camp um, or first days of camp you might only have a few days to come down uh, or or to get off work but definitely those those first few days it's very hard to to keep a bit in the tank so that was definitely our objective with the camp this week and i think we succeeded we got to the first rest day everyone's you know they're tired and there's definitely some fatigue there but everyone's got a little bit left for week two so that's good yeah so all good things and then so you've been riding some road and some mountain with some pretty good people figure let's let's talk about what we're up to before we get into some of these questions well i'm staring at my david's tea Uh, i call it a brew tea but i'm very excited about that that's true. That was a good Christmas present for my, you. My brother works at David's Tea, uh, my youngest brother, and he, he got me this brew tea. So it's essentially, it, it functions much like a, a coffee press. I'll, we'll link to this, of course, in the show notes. But um, there's a couple different varieties. The one I have is more for tea, so it doesn't work perfectly for coffee, but it works pretty good. Um, and basically, it's like a coffee press. You put your water in, pour it on top of the grinds. But then rather than pouring it at the top, you set the entire press on top of your mug, and it just sort of lets the fluid come through a, a filter through the bottom. So it's actually sort of fun to watch the, the water come out of the press. And then Or when Peter doesn't watch the water come out of it, it's yeah. really fun to watch his reaction when it overflows the mug and starts going everywhere. Yeah, it's like, I think I have the 12-ounce one, so if you have an 8-ounce cup, you're... You gotta be careful. You gotta yeah. watch. Yeah, you can't walk away and multitask. Or I think I just zoned out. At yeah, you were just having yesterday. a conversation. And... Yeah, I zoned out and then yeah. So anyhow, check it out. I, I it's some of the best coffee I've had. Very consistent. Um, yeah, I'm pretty happy with it. So that's that's a product. Are you have any products that you've been enjoying? Oh man, that, that was kind of putting me on the spot there. Uh, actually, it's funny my. My phone just went, or my phone just went off, and I just heard it on my Apple Watch Series Two, uh, which my parents got for me for Christmas. It sound like you got sponsored by Apple. I know, right? I did not. I just have really, really nice parents who decided to get this for me as my birthday present from last year, Christmas, birthday, foreseeable future present. Um, They surprised me with it for Christmas, and I've actually been really liking it for its uh, activity mode. I can set it so it, like, knows how many steps and everything I'm taking during the day, and it goes off when I do that, which, duh, most watches do, or fitness trackers anyway. But it also reminds me to breathe, which is nice. Um, It's great for being able to text people from, and I actually did a phone call with you, and I felt like a spy. But more, uh, if I'm running or riding, I always think of stories that I want to write or things that I want to do. And now I can just hold my, like, face, like, my wrist up to my face and just record a note that way without fumbling for my phone, so. How does it know if you're breathing? It's like a meditation reminder. You just haven't meditated in long enough. Like, twice a day, it pops up, like, breathe, and then it leads you through, like, guided breathing if you want. I admit I usually just see the breathe thing and then, like, Hmm. kind of pause for a few seconds. Yeah, definitely on my, I have a Garmin watch that I use for the triathlon training this year, and it has uh, a move alarm, so definitely, like, if you're sitting for too long. It, oh, this one has that, too. And it's yeah. sort of funny, like, some people would get mad at it, but it, like, I've had hour four in a bike ride, like a road ride, and it'll come on and tell me to move. And well, that hurts. <laughs> yeah, and so it's like, or, like, sometimes in strength training, but most of the time it's, like, something low level, like doing core or... Um, just riding like endurance and mm-hmm. it'll come on because it's not getting like vibrated around like you would if you were you know moving boxes or walking or something that, mm-hmm. that it's actually set up to measure 
I don't know. I think it's good. I, at the first couple times, I was like, come on. But then I was decided it was like, well, maybe I should get off this bike for a couple minutes here and just Fair sort enough. of put my arms over my head and a couple deep squats. So yeah. I've, I stopped on the road a couple times just because it beeped at me and took a break and probably like, a good reminder. I feel like we're in like battle of the watches because we got ours like pretty like similar times. You got yours in November. I got mine in December. Um, mine definitely looks cooler. I think yeah. we can safely say that. The Garmin watch is absurd. Like, it actually would be too big for my wrist. No, it's what I imagine my Casio calculator watch looked like mm -hmm. when I was in grade three. Similar proportions. Mm -hmm. I've never been a watch person, but, yeah, since my parents got me this, I've been pretty consistent. I feel like it's just such a, like, weird thing to say my parents got me something yeah, at my age. Really I'm odd. really sorry. Yeah. Um, I swear, this is this is not a normal it's thing. okay. We're down to four listeners now. Oh, Sorry, guys. Anyway. Uh, on that note, why don't we get into some of these Q&As? Some really good stuff this week. Uh, I'm always excited to talk training. So, as always, if you go over to consummateathlete.com, there's a question sort of contact page. Maybe you have a suggestion for a guest. Or if you have a question you've been wondering, you can put it there. Also, our Facebook page is good. Or you can email uh, even myself or Molly. Do you want yeah. to give your email? Uh, I think it's actually info at consummateathlete.com oh, wow. redirects. We have, a, we, yeah. have, we have one perfect. We're super pro. Are you sure about that? I'm pretty okay, sure. Okay. If not, it'll be set up by the time this goes live. Yeah, who checks that? <laughs> Uh-oh, we might have a ton of questions. I think you just made that up. I did not. Okay. You no. could also tweet at us at Molly J. Herford or at Peter Glassford. Anyway, let's get into it. So first one comes from Keith. He says, quick question. For all the sprints I do on the trainer, I do them seated. Should I mix some standing sprints in there as well? So this is cycling trainer if you're coming at us from a different sports background. Yeah, and I think this relates, you know, a lot of people are doing spin class, you know, just to stay fit for fitnessing uh, purposes. Or, you know, maybe doing cross training. Certainly we talked to Blake Bell, a football player, and he was talking about going to spin classes and suffering it out. Uh, so the thing here is, you know, with my clients, Keith's one of my clients actually, and I generally will not have people do a lot of standing work indoors. And the reason is to try and avoid uh, grooving, so to speak, uh, a movement pattern that's not what we would want to do outside when we're sprinting or standing out of the saddle. A lot of people really struggle. And if you think about your riding really objectively, and maybe one of your friends or someone could even sort of speak to you about this if you ask them, um, or get them to make a video. Yeah, you'd have to do a whole GoPro video to really assess it, but a lot of times when we stand, the bike doesn't move, so it's like you're on a trainer, and you sort of do this odd, like, balance maneuver where you don't ever, as I call it, like, hitting the bottom, so you don't ever stand at that 6 o'clock position of the crank, letting the bike move over to the opposite side, so if left foot's down, the bike would be leaning to the right. And finding that balance is really important when you're standing. And once you find it, you can be very powerful because you're basically just doing like a step up, if you can visualize that, like stomping your right foot at the top of the pedal stroke, all your weight goes on the right, and it sort of moves the bike over to the left. And then you hit the bottom of the right, and you get to sort of pause. You don't actually pause because your pedals are moving around pretty quickly. But you're able to touch the bottom. So just like when you run and you touch the ground, that's how we want to stand. But on a spin bike, a lot of times people are like up on almost like they're on their toes and they don't ever, it's like burns your quads really bad. So Especially when class, you're in a spin class and they're yelling, well, stand, stand. Yeah, and like you're supposed to feel it in your quads or something. So, so what I usually advise is every couple minutes stand up and like you just pop your butt off the saddle for like a minute or two. This is in Molly's Saddle Sore book as well. Um, and that's for comfort, and then also to just shift the load a bit on your muscles, let your body sort of shift that load um, on the muscle fibers and stuff as well, but also more so just to give your butt a rest on the trainer or the spin bike. Um, for sprints, we usually focus on that seated power, so some things, you know, in Carmichael world or, or different things, we'll call that stomps. In the Joe Freer world, you call it force reps. They're basically the same thing. Um, and so basically just working on that, going really really hard for 8 to 12 to 20 seconds uh, but mostly seated and you might stand up again to sort of hover for one or two paddle strokes at the beginning or the end just to get that gear moving over no different than during threshold or something like that you might stand up just to keep the gear moving over and give your butt a break and sort of shift your position um, but in my mind we're much better and this relates to our consummate athlete mindset to use strength training to use running sprinting to use hill sprinting to use 
um, plyo jumps, um, assuming you progress towards that, for that maximal neuromuscular sort of gains in the off season, even during the season, um, and wait till you can get outside and, and really sprint for real. Again, watch the Tour de France, watch a mountain bike climb, watch Nino or someone going up a climb, um, and you'll see what I mean, especially if you then, as Molly says, go and like shoot from the same angle as a shot you have of Nino or something like a Tour de France sprint and see if you look the same or do you look like you're on a spin bike balancing on your toes. Um, so hopefully that helps. That's my mindset. If you're doing standing sprints inside, I don't think it's, it's not the end of the world. It's again, it's a sort of a drop in the bucket, but I think from a movement standpoint, um, and even just a muscle activation, you're not activating the same muscles. I think you're better off focusing on what you can focus on well on the trainer, um, and wait till you can get outside. I think now they, they make some trainers that actually allow you to tilt the bike. You probably don't have one of these if you're asking this question. Yeah, and that's a valid point. Like, there's definitely, and it, like, if you can get really good at riding rollers or you have, like, there's e-motion rollers with, um, uh, like, cages, basically, or extra rollers that help prevent you from popping off rollers. Um, and then certainly there's trainers that move, and I can't remember what they're called. I haven't seen a lot about them in the last few years, but they're pretty hilarious. So that would be, that's better. The bike can move a little bit, but it's still not quite the same. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, certainly if you have some crazy contraption, like, you know, if you can ride on a treadmill on your bike, like if you can ride a treadmill on your bike and you have one of those $50,000 treadmills, yes, you can probably stand up and sprint. I feel like that's a rumor we heard about Nino at some point in time. No, there's a video of yeah. him riding it. And you'll see people, I've seen a bunch this year, actually, of people just on treadmills riding. Um, and they're just like longer treadmills and like, I think they're actually just at treadmills. Hmm. Yeah. Anyhow, for the most part, I would focus on becoming a better athlete. Yet another reason we need a manual treadmill. <clears throat> no. Yes. No, we need Olympic lifting platforms is what I'm on right now. So. Oh dear. That's going to ruin our tiny house. No, I didn't fit. <laughs> It'd be in like a stylish cedar or not cedar, cedar's crappy wood. What's it like a good wood? Polished like mahogany? Fine mahogany. Walnut. <laughs> it's going to be the frame of our house. I don't house. know if mahogany is what you want your your uh, floor built no, for Olympic lifting. No, the whole frame of our house is going to be your platform. Like, I think that'll be it. Yeah. Anyway, next question. Uh, this is kind of a combination of a bunch of questions we've gotten recently. Uh, people have just been really interested in learning about the process of becoming a coach or finding a mentor in said journey to becoming a coach, uh, sort of in any sport. So, you know, they asked about, you know, our tips, our thoughts, you know, how the process works, any ideas. Um, so, Peter, I'll let you go first because I know you have a lot more experience with mentorship than I certainly do. I do. I'm wondering if you, you know, you're working your way through some cycling coaching stuff now. Mm -hmm. So what have you found? Uh, honestly, I mean, so I've been uh, USA Cycling, cycling coach for, I think, five years now. And I mean, I don't often work with clients, but I certainly do work at camps and clinics and things like that, uh, which is, you know, way more of where my interest lies. Uh, which I think is kind of part of it. Like when I got into like wanting to become a coach, I sort of knew exactly what I wanted to do with it. I knew I didn't want to take on personal clients. So I think the first kind of step in getting into coaching is, you know, sitting down and thinking like, okay, what do I actually want to do with this? Uh, if the answer is just make more money, it's probably not for you. I can, I can definitely say that. Yeah. Or like do it as like a side. I keep reading of actually lately about like, you know, great side hustles for like increasing your income in 2017. And like three of them were like, become a coach in a sport, mm -hmm. like start a boot camp class, like start a yoga retreat. And I was like, but, but that, that's not how you earn extra money. You do that because it's a, you know, skill that you've honed and that you love and you care about. So I guess my first thing is, why do you want to do it? Yeah, I mean, I would never do cycling coaching for sure, but coaching in general for money. There's very few people, like, it's very long hours, and it's very intensive, like, both emotionally and... Um, <laughs> it's not a casual side hustle. But, yeah, like, I mean, case in point, like, we're at a camp, and, like, this is our first, like, off morning because it's a recovery day, and that's, you know, it's been a solid seven days and driving across the country and stuff like that, so... You know, and when you're home, it's there's a lot of text time and, and everything else. But let's assume that you, you're aware or at least we'll find out um, through a mentorship, you know, what actually is involved. 
uh, with coaching because every job's got that. Every job should be a commitment. Every job, you should really like it. So I think the big thing that you you touched on was going and experiencing cycling. So I think sometimes people are really quick to jump into coaching. And I think the important thing is, I think you said when you were talking earlier, like a minimum competency. And it doesn't mean you have to do backflips. It doesn't mean you have to even be able to keep up. Like your fitness isn't necessarily tied to that. Um, but you definitely want to get out and experience different types of cycling and, and, and situations, as you say. So that might be maybe really like track cycling because you're able to watch the athletes the whole time. It's a little bit more controlled. A lot of times the coaches would not ride. Like it, that would almost be rare. Um, so track cycling might be something that you really like. And track cycling, because of that sort of structured, contained nature, also usually has a pretty good we'll call it a mentorship program, but you can get in, be a volunteer, help mm-hmm. the coaches, be an assistant coach, you know, supervise track times, be a commissar, you know, supervising the thing, um, and then work your way up. And, and there's lots of tracks around, not as many maybe as people would want, but mm-hmm. you might have to drive. So tracks, tracks a good one. BMX is another sport that's pretty contained and is very family oriented and um, very fun to watch. And, and, and again, very I think because of the nature of it, the the mentorships come from going up and talking to the coach and can I help? Can I be a volunteer? Can I be an assistant coach? Um, I think that works for, I mean, you could say swimming is again, contained uh, track and field are contained. Field, for sure. Steeplechase is sort of, I guess the BMX of the running world. Yeah. So what I would do personally um, is go and take the course as an athlete. You mm-hmm. know, often there's a learn to, run a learn to mm-hmm. bmx a learn to snowboard a learn to obstacle course run um you know whatever the thing is ultimate frisbee you know there's pickup there's all that stuff so just go out and make sure you are participating and learning and then from there you can progress and learn about you know meet people and volunteer with a kids group volunteer with you know uh, a beginner group um yeah because you have to get in there and see that environment right if you're just used to going in and running on your own and you think you want to run coach well you haven't really experienced that like group running dynamic so it is important to do that um once you've done that i think again that mentorship that face-to-face time and getting off the hacks and the internet and everything else is important because you can have someone we'll call them a mentor but it could just be the head coach at you know whatever you're doing they can lead you to the certification so in cycling we have um nccp which is a multi-sport coaching certification in Canada Um, and then there's Ontario Coaches Association and then there's also coach.ca so for Canadians that would be a thing uh, you can look into and those again are multi-sport and cover a lot of different sports from cross-country skiing and that sort of stuff in the states there'd be USAC for cycling has their own coaching certification and that takes care of sort of your basic certifications Um, but there's always other things that are more practical too and but you need both for sure um, but you can go and take, like, there's the PMBI is a mountain bike instructor's course. Um, I that, think IMBA has one. That's in North America. IMBA has a, a sort of coaching certification, again, that's more focused on the technical skills, the technical instruction, you know, how, what, how to get lead people on trail rides and stuff. Um, and, again, similar in a lot of other sports, whether that's snowboarding or something like that, there would be sort of you're going and getting sort of a structured uh, coach's course, but then there's also the more skill-based stuff too mm-hmm. um, and more, you know, avalanche safety and that sort of stuff. So it just starts building. But if you have someone you can talk to, then you can ask those questions and find out which, like what was their pathway, where did they go, um, and really get in and sort of <clears throat> just choose, right? Like you just have to start. It's not going to be the perfect pathway, but it's going to be your pathway. Yeah, and I think you can also say coming as someone who's – you know, been a a mentee, you've had a mentor. And I think you've also been kind of a mentor to some people. Um, I think before you approach somebody and just kind of either make them your mentor or say, will you be my mentor? I think you need to do a certain amount of research into it, like not just learning how to ride or taking the ride thing. Like, you know, I read pretty much everything on cycling and, you know, sports nutrition in the last like three decades. Like mm-hmm. I've been reading books on yeah how to ride bikes since before I rode bikes, <laughs> and you know my my depth of knowledge in that is you know pretty extensive. So I think the worst thing you can do is kind of show up to a head coach and just be like, hey, like I want to be a coach, like make me a coach. 
So I guess how do you approach? How do you prefer somebody approach you for kind of mentorship tips and advice? Yeah, there's someone on Twitter recently, and I was just like, they said something to the effect of like, why is there no mentorship programs in cycling? And I was just sort of thinking to myself, like, I just don't feel like that's true. I think it's just it's not something that you can really structure. Like, if we tried to structure, it would be really awkward, and no one would use it. Um, I think it's more so that, especially in this day and age, people don't like that face-to-face time and that commitment, like a long-term commitment. Mm-hmm. So I was fortunate, like I worked with Steve Neal, who you know has influenced a lot of people in Ontario, if not Canada, if not beyond. Um, and he was a really smart guy, and you know I was I came to that through coaching. You know I was coached by Steve for quite a few years, and you know, eventually we were getting along and, you know, I had a showed an interest as Molly said, I read a lot of books and every book Steve gave me, I read. And, um, eventually that just progressed to, you know, he had lots of, you know, a bunch of clients and slowly I got a couple, I had connections and stuff and he helped sort of the business side of things too was, he was very instrumental in that, right? Like, how do you make, how do you jump from that, like coaching your buddy mm-hmm. with an Excel program to like actually having a business, right? And that's, for cycling, that's that's important because how are you going to make this? You know, it's not big money, but you got to survive somehow if you're going to be someone who's doing it full time. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, I think it's just developing that again. It gets back to go and meet people, go out and take a course. Like you're going to have to spend some time and money, and it's not going to be just an online, you know. Yeah, there's no button to click for a mentor. No, certainly like the online learning and stuff is is nice. It augments that. You can Skype call with your mentor or whatever. And so you do have access to more stuff, but you know, you got to go there. You got to get into the gym, into the, you know, onto the trail, onto the whatever you're in, the end of the pool. Um, Go and pay for that person. And it's surprising, like people are very accessible if you just reach out, especially in this day and age, because no one does. Mm-hmm. you know figure it out you know and it, it might not even be like i think the total immersion people were a perfect example mm-hmm. like terry's a great guy and he's the guy that wrote the book and all the like stuff about total immersion you're a little starstruck yeah and i mean we didn't get to see terry but he's in new jersey like he actually lives really close to molly and he was like yeah i do courses all the time come yeah. on over but then we met suzanne and who else did we meet uh we got to talk to someone else who was or we talked, we to, talked to suzanne you had a class with somebody else yeah yeah, and then just like apologies to her if she's listening I'm because Peter's bad with I'm names. I'm completely blanking. Um, yeah, but people are just very accessible, mm-hmm. right? So if you just ask and be our polite, and and again, you're gonna have to invest in it. Like you can't just say like, "Hey, give me ideas." Yeah. Like, what did you do to get money? But you need to. It's, it's like when I hate when people ask me how they get my job. Yeah, and I mean, I guess you can speak to that too. Like people often ask Molly, "How do you become a sports writer?" And I think that's the exact same. How do you get a job? But how do you get a job in sport? How do you get a job in cycling? And it's you know you start reading, you start writing, you start you know blog, you start you know, and this is the advice you usually give people like mm-hmm. f- you know phone up your local magazine or um, magazine blog website. <laughs> Get involved, magazine. research, don't just show up and, and ask a lot for a of job. We'll let you write. Like, if you can write semi reasonably, they will let you write for them. You won't get paid, mm-hmm. but you'll get now an article to your name. You can link to that author page. Um, and, and then away you go. Slowly that built. If you do a good job and you ask good questions and the editors like you, mm-hmm. you know, then that builds from there. And then maybe they'll pay you, you know. Which is always super sweet. Yeah. And then the big magazine picks you up and then the big whatever. So. I think that's the thing is you got to start and you got to invest a little bit. It doesn't have to be everything, but it's going to be, you know, the more you invest, the more you get out of it. And yeah. it's time and money for sure. Yeah. So I think, I don't know, that's a long rambling thing. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully semi-motivational in a monotone sense. Do your homework, meet people. Yeah, just talk real to life. people. Like by all means. Well, I had made up that fake email she gave out earlier. So. Info at confidentathlete.com, which I promise will be up and running by the time. I'm not looking time. forward to setting up that email. But okay. I swear it exists. <laughs> anyway, next question. Before Peter keeps throwing me under the bus. Jeez. Um, all right, this one is actually for Peter because he has the fastest Canadian time at Leadville, uh, which is, if you haven't heard of it, a very hard 100-mile mountain bike race. Um, so the question is about meeting the time cutoffs in the race. The goal that this guy has is 12 hours, but his question is, 
Peter, your thoughts on racing in upper heart rate zone three and four versus knowing that this is an endurance event and racing zone two early. I know this depends a lot on how fast one can go in zone two, but is racing in zone four a setup for failure slash bonking slash gastrointestinal problems with food absorption? Uh, I'd love to hear your general thoughts on heart rate zones and how you feel regarding Leadville 100 and heart rate. Yeah, so I think this relates to anything you're going to do for an extended period of time. So even the Leadville 100 running race, which is the same exact course, but running. Yeah, and, and yeah, you're going to have a little difference in zones depending on your time span, but let's assume it's going to be a 12-hour event. So the cutoff time in Leadville, it's sort of sad, and if you go to it, it's you have to watch because it's so crushing and emotional. But at 12 hours you don't get a belt buckle and then at 13 hours they just start tearing down and you're not in the results anymore so you could very well spend 13 hours and one second on your bike and you it would be like you never did the event that is just like the most heartbreaking yeah and like everyone wants their silver belt buckle or whatever the 12 hour belt buckle is um and so if you're at 12 hours and one second again you're in the results but like you are no buckle you don't you just go home you don't get to stay or you could go to the awards the next day i guess but you'd be really depressed yeah like i guess you're a finisher but you don't get a finisher's medal or something i don't know how that works but anyhow, you don't get the coveted belt Man, buckle leadville is brutal and by the way those i'm just gonna say it those belt buckles kind of ugly they're really big like, that's right i i said it i'm so not taking it back the next level and this is you know a lot of my clients will go the first time and They'll be looking at 12 and we'll do like a high nine or like a something under a 1030 maybe. Most people, I can get that pretty consistently. You know, normal people not training a ton, um, you know, and then take care of their nutrition. I, I always talk about all the other things. Like you just have to pedal your bike. Like it's the distance is there. The altitude is there. But it's not that technical. There's people to draft off of. As long as you know how to ride your bike and stay in a group and keep the food coming in your mouth and your bike doesn't fall apart. You can do pretty well. So 12 hours is pretty doable by most people. But you got to do, again, all the work ahead of time. So let's not confuse it with zones. I really shudder when I hear people talking about zone two. We always have the joke that zone two is... this is The garbage <laughs> zone, right? Well, I mean, it shouldn't be. But well, the way people say is they say they have a zone two ride today. And then they always like go out and just murk it and they're just pinned the entire time so i oh, see i'd be doing the opposite you'd say zone two to me and i would just like five miles an hour like no that'd be like zone one normal doesn't matter um <laughs> no so zone two should just be your endurance is basically what that should mean um mm -hmm. so we'll call that like under 75 percent of max heart rate if you, you don't use and i usually use percent of max heart rate um and then wattage to help just guide specific intervals but again we'll keep this to heart rate so the issue is if you use a zone three or four, you're going to run into a time limited, like you can only go so far. So zone four, let's call that threshold. So our classic incorrect definition of threshold is that it would be about an hour of work. So if you ride in zone four, you're not going to do very well in, for a 12 hour event. If you tried to just go off the gun in zone four, by definition, like let's maybe make it 90 minutes, but you're going to be fading fast right it's time limited so you're going to have to back off your body's going to run out of fuel and muscular energy and and everything else so you're going to be a little too hot um, and that's not even taking into account uh, altitude so my strategy is usually to use uh, a starting point between 80 and 85 percent of max heart rate um, we establish max heart rate based off of, of what you've seen in training and racing in the last three to four months. And that's going to change depending on some athletes, like younger athletes, like the ones we have at the camp right now. Um, over the next couple of years, they'll probably see their max heart rate come down. So if you're a hummingbird and you haven't done much uh, endurance training, you might see that max heart rate come down. But most people are pretty consistent in their heart rates. I believe you got called, uh, you have an old man heart rate yeah, yesterday. Yeah, I might coin that. So my heart rate's very low, so I my endurance capacity is good, but I need to work on boosting my heart rate. Not so much to increase my max heart rate again, that doesn't necessarily happen, but to work on just higher intensity, but that's a aside. So basically what you're going to need to do is you're going to need to go out and do what I call gameplay, and you're going to need to ride at sort of that 80 to 85% as sort of your top limit. Remember, we want to maximize the work we can do, but minimize the work we have to do. And I've stolen that from someone, but that's the concept here. So in training, you want to pedal all the time. You don't want to be coasting. You don't really want to be drafting even necessarily very much. 
you want practice drafting and group rides and simulations, but you don't want to, when you're training, you want to just sort of really work on that 80 to 85%. And if you're out in that sort of 12 hour time span, you're going to be spending even time. Like you can correct me, send me your file, but your average is probably going to be even lower than that. Um, so for someone who's in that longer, so we'll call that between the belt buckles, the nine to 12 hour sort of time span, you're probably going to spend a bunch of time more close to or closer to sort of 80%. So the longer the event goes, the lower that heart rate's going to have to be. So the lower you're going to have to be on the, the total effort. I think that makes sense. So the guys that are doing it at like six hours are very fit and they don't have to be out there as long. So they can go harder because they're going shorter. Okay, so that should make sense on some sort of level. So what we would do is just sort of gameplay what you can sustain and what you can fuel without gastrointestinal issues. That's a great that this person's thinking about that. So there's the bonking, the failure, all cause, failure due to all cause, um, and then gastrointestinal. Certainly the harder you go, the more risk you run for gastrointestinal things, right? Like if you go at, if you're just walking, you could probably eat a sandwich, you know, and, and be fine. If you're doing a cycle cross race, you're not going to eat a sandwich. Again, that probably makes sense that there's some sort of relation to intensity and duration there. Um, so, so basically, I think the way I've had success with people is just we drill that 80 to 85%. We try and increase the pace at that 80 to 85%. Uh, often we'll use a math styled submax test to sort of just test the wattage, the performance at that 80 to 85%. Um, and that will let us see if they're getting fitter. So at the Leadville or at the all-day pace, are they going faster and faster and faster? And are they able to sustain it better and better and better? Um, and then we'll just ride under that for the most part. Will there be times you go up to zone four, five, maybe, but they should be pretty specific. You know, maybe you make that group that just tows you around for an hour, and you spend a bit of a match. You know, going a little higher for thirty seconds a minute. You know, maybe it's the last half of the race and you're feeling good and you're saying, wow, like I way underpace this, then by all means accelerate, you know, in that last 25 miles if you think you can accelerate. But usually what has always happened, I don't know if there's ever been an exception, but that as long as we game play that, we'll call it 80 to 85% limit, that Leadville limit, then people do pretty good. So the main thing is just chill a little bit in the first 50 miles, keep something in the tank, keep the food coming into your mouth, and zone four is probably too hard. I like it. Uh, what you just said reminded me of like the best first piece of advice I ever got during like, when I started road racing was to just, if the group was, if you drop, if you got dropped from the group or you saw the group ahead of you, you murder yourself to get back on because it will be so much easier once you're in that draft again. Yeah, and what's probably missing there is, you know, if, if the group gets away or it's just ahead, you want to do a check that there isn't a group just behind that would, also tow, that would tow you to the group um, and or that group might be going too hot and you'll end up catching those people later. So mm -hmm. there's definitely tactics in something like Leadville. So usually we'll include some group riding, if not some road racing ahead of time. Mm -hmm. Like definitely people think it's too much of a road race and underestimate the technical again, because your time limit and your zones don't matter when you flip over the handlebars and break your wrist, <laughs> right? Or you flat on col right. Columbine because it's pretty chunky, even though it's mostly double track or ATV trail. You still can't get a flat. Yeah. So, you know, and if you're running super light tires because you're a road, you know, you got to be super light and you flat, it doesn't matter. So mm -hmm. I usually, when people get really into their zones and stuff, we throw that out and we go back and work on mountain bike skills mm -hmm. because usually that's a great sign that people need to work on mountain bike skills, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, and to the point of skills, I mean, we've talked about this a million times, skills also count being able to change a flat quickly and under pressure because i feel like that's that could suck 30 minutes off of your time if uh, people, you're i haven't like had people hour, but i know like, people who have gone with my clients like friends you're fumbling you're panicked your heart rate's yeah. like skyrocketed because now you're freaked out yeah. <laughs> you can't get the yeah. tire the off more you can be a macgyver like i've had one client finished i don't remember what his time was that year he's eventually gotten in pretty decent time um but he had his pedal came off the spindle and he just rode out the rest 
just kept putting the pedal onto the spindle. It was stuck to the bottom of the shoe, and he finished, and he was well under, comfortably under 12 hours for sure. That's sick. Um, but, yeah, I've had friends of clients who have gone down with them and stayed with them and stuff, and they've done it, um, and they couldn't fix a flat. They didn't figure they'd never get a flat. They've never got a flat. They have stands, tubeless, <laughs> and they just dropped out. Oh, right? man, so that's an you, expensive... Like, think about that. You just invested three to 12 months of training. And three to 12 grand, sure. let's be honest. It's not cheap to get there. You're probably there for a week or two ahead of time. So, yeah, and it would have taken, you know, when you're thinking about doing crazy standing sprints on the trainer in the winter, why not just skip those, do a couple seated ones, do some strength training, and practice your flat changes. Yeah. You know, and absolutely. again, get some instruction. That gets back to that idea of coaching and... Um, mentorship like mm-hmm. just go ask someone to show you you know take you through it. It, it it honestly takes seeing it closely twice and having someone help you twice fix it and you'll be you'll be pretty much fine you won't need those tire levers anymore it'll be perfect mm-hmm. awesome all right before we get on to the next question we're going to pause for a quick word from our sponsor welcome back to the consummate athlete podcast Before we get going, let's hear a word from our show's sponsor, Health IQ. Health IQ provides life insurance for healthy, active people like yourself, dare I say, consummate athletes like yourself. They have competitive rates and a great website. If you can go check it out at healthiq.com slash consummate athlete, you'll help us out and you'll be helping yourself out by finding out a little bit more about life insurance, whether you need it, and what some options are. No pressure. Just go check out the website. Try a quiz. Thanks, guys. All right. Welcome back. Um, I think we're going to sort of finish this off with kind of a longer talk about base season since that's coming up for pretty much everybody except for skiers and cyclocrossers. Uh, for you guys, enjoy your off season. <laughs> But those of us that are getting started, I know Peter and I are starting to build up for Ironman this August. Peter's building for a mountain bike season as well. Um, And I mean, obviously, we're out at this camp with a bunch of road and mountain bike cyclists that are starting to get ready. But whether you can get to a month-long camp where you're not doing any other work other than training or you're, you know, at home in a nine-to-five, base season is a, a thing that matters, right? For sure it is, yeah. So let's talk. I mean, first, let's let's talk about for those nine to five people, because let's face it, most of us are not at training camps. I mean, geez, we're we're at a training camp and we're still not riding every day. Like, So unless you happen to be one of the very exclusive group of young elite athletes, you probably have other things going on. Yeah, I would say speaking to my clients, there's basically um, a few different situations that people run into. You'll have the people who can't get away, you know, they're nine to five and with families and stuff all the time. So for them, what I'll usually do is we'll just try and find and plan maybe the long weekends. Like in Canada, we'll have your Christmas, New Year's, we'll have family days in February, March has March break, April is Easter, and May has May 2-4, so, which is actually called Victoria Day or something like that, but... Really weird holidays in Canada. Yeah, civic holiday too. I think it's also called the civic holiday. So we have not one every month, but one most months. And especially during the base months, there's pretty much one every month. So what we'll do is we'll try and plan around family stuff to even just add a ride to increase that training load. Um, But also try and find some time to do that three hour plus ride. So I'm big on three hours. You know, if you can get three hours in, that's that's pretty good for most people. That's going to be a good overload. Um, And once you can ride for three hours, that's that's pretty, pretty good. You can do a lot with three hours. Um, And certainly when someone becomes efficient at three hours, then we can definitely bump that, you know, start playing with things like more fasted or lower carb or higher cadence or harder riding or group riding or intervals within the three hour ride so there's lots of stuff you can do with three hours so long story short if you don't have a week to go away you can't go afford a camp you can't you know get away from family you have all those commitments you just do that you know you find a friday night and you go night riding saturday you go out with the guys like usual sunday you go for that long 
you know, whatever, donut ride or coffee ride or whatever, right? Maybe that's, you know, with your significant other, you just do a long ride every Sunday. Then you're all set. Um, so what about minimum time for like a weekly basis? Because I mean, right now we're with the athletes who are hitting, you know, hours, 25 hours a week. Yeah, 18 to 25. I think people like to talk of like a big game, but no one's really doing and, over 25 is a lot of hours. And no 18 is really not that bad, especially. I mean, it's three hours a day, six days a week. Uh, yeah, that's what I mean. People think it's not bad, but <laughs> no, no as one, I said it, I was no like, wait one a trains second, three hours a day for six days a week. Like, I'm still standing by my uh, my theory last year of just doing one 24-hour training session per week yeah, where I just go 24 just hours straight. Certainly <laughs> try that. So that's that's almost a good analogy for what we're trying to avoid. This might be disjoint. Womp, womp. Um, but you could train for 24 hours and really overload. So basically the training stress for that, no matter how you did those 24 hours, again, to our earlier question, there's about one way you would do that 24 hours. Um, it would just be sort of at 70%. of. There would be some crawling involved for sure, high. yeah. Um, and even if you started hard, it would eventually be average out around that. Uh, for 24 hours, I can't recall what it is, but it's around, we'll call it 65 to 70%. Um and you just sort of would ride that. So you can start really hard and finish really basically crawling or sleeping um, in the last few hours, but you will average in around there. Um, so all that to say, we're trying to avoid a situation where it's very acute and you end up with one big training dose, maybe an injury, maybe a saddle sore, maybe a sickness, and then nothing for days or weeks. So the 24 hours once a week is a good <laughs> is a good way to understand what we're trying not to do with a training camp. So in the example I just gave for the person who works 9 to 5 regularly, few vacation weeks, you know, if they went and did 3 5-hour rides just randomly, you know, and their usual training hours were 6 a week and they did 15 hours in three days, that could be good, but it could also very quickly lead to injury, illness, saddle sores. Um, so for them, again, you want to step that up. So again, a, a three three-hour days, again, that's nine hours when they're usually just riding six, could be a really, really nice training boost. That's going to boost their, their fitness. That's going to boost the training stress significantly. They're going to be tired. Um, the numbers might not be as impressive on Strava, but it's going to be a really nice boost to their fitness and very sustainable. They'll go right back into their usual six hour routine the next week with a mm -hmm. bit more fitness. Um, and that's really nice. So the next example would be someone who can get away. I have a lot of clients that'll go to like a trek travel or they'll go, you know, with their, their family, even away to Florida. And then they sneak away every morning for a few hours. And so for them, if they're coming from a six or say six to 10 hour training week in their normal week at home and they're nine to five, then maybe we bump that up. And again, they're going three hours. We start the camp very conservative, maybe a two and a three hour. And then the last couple of days, if they're really motivated and the goal requires them to be riding for four or five hours, again, that's important to consider how important that is and whether the three hours with quality is better. But we might throw a four and a five hour towards the end of that camp. And again, they're going to finish that camp maybe with 18 hours, maybe with 20 hours, mm -hmm. um, which again, considering a six to 10 hour normal, their chronic uh, sort of average is pretty good. Right? I really thought you meant chronic in like a cool way. I, and I was about there to is no just cool like, way, but yeah. So basically you're going to go again, you just don't want to overload what your usual is by too much. So the, the, what they'll say is like, if you take your average of the last four weeks, so again, say it was eight hours a week you train, then if you go and ride 12, that's a 50% increase. And so that's becoming like on the cusp of even like high risk mm -hmm. based on what's seen. So again, you can survive. I'm not saying you can't survive, but I'm saying that the risk for saddle sore, injury, illness, prolonged off time. Again, think about Molly's 24 hours once a week. <laughs> I don't actually do that for the record. No, but it's a good analogy. And so if you did 15 hours, 16, 18, and you're 100% increase, it's just the risk and the payoff. So risk reward, you're not going to get back to training like your usual self mm -hmm. for longer. And you might think you are, but this is where that like come June, you're burnt out. Come June, you have IT band syndrome or Ten, what, tendinopathy. They always keep changing the name on me. Um, and so it's just high risk. So again, you want to assess if that quote-unquote fun of a like 30-hour like, suffer fest out in the mountains is really worth not riding in July. 
mm-hmm. right? And what we're trying to accomplish, just a little boost in your training load. So think about that 50%. So if you ride for 10 hours, 15 hours in a, a week you have off from work with the family is perfect. And again, maybe be a consummate athlete, go for a hike with the family in the afternoon. You can still boost that work capacity, but you want to be careful again with the overuse and the saddle sores. So if we go on white walks, white, that's not even a word. If we go on walk or hike or wike, I like it, yeah. <laughs> if we wike, um, you know, you can avoid the saddle sores for the most part. We can avoid the overuse for the most part and still increase the movement in the day. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yes. I have a couple follow-ups. Sure. Okay, first one. So we're talking about, so you increase by 50%, right? What are some kind of warning signs that you should, like, back off? Right? Like, what does it mean when you wake up in the morning? Like, when should I be like, oh, maybe today should be an easy ride instead of trying that next three hour? Um, so, I mean, I think you should just be cautious if you know. Like, do that math beforehand. Did you increase by more than 50%? If you're going to take the risk, acknowledge you're taking the risk. Um you know, I would watch that the intensity is not too high and I would, you know, be, be pretty specific about that. Make sure the recovery is adequate. The food is increasing with it. Um, because if you don't be careful and you don't increase the food and the recovery capacity, you're going to end up with warning signs. So to your question, if you wake up at, in really early in the morning and you're hungry or you just can't go back to sleep, that's a warning sign. You now have a disrupted sleep, whether that's due to some sort of change in hormonal status um, or just you're short on calories, you're getting some sort of like blood glucose issue. Again, this is all a sign that your body's trying to adapt to this stress. So you can try eating more. Often that will help. Um, You can try going back and not riding more than 50% than your chronic training load. Again, that average weekly or normal. Um, another warning sign would be aches and pains and saddle sores. Your body isn't adapting. So there's, you know, it might not just be your energy and your personal motivation. It might be that your knee isn't adapting. Your Achilles tendon to a big run block isn't adapting. You know, that's for me as a more of a cyclist trying to increase my run mileage, especially on the road. Like I could run a marathon right now, but like I wouldn't walk for weeks. Right, so I have to be very careful and you know do my calf raises and my hill sprints and my you know gradual exposure and wear a little bigger shoes than I want to wear. Um, so it's just it's just gradually building up over time and having a plan. And I'm trying to think if there's any warning signs I'm missing. I mean, if you're getting sick, you're getting the sniffles. That's a, a good early warning sign. A lot of cyclists have this like always chronic sniffles and uh, like sinus infections, and that's. Even aside from training camps, that's a good sign that you're, something's not right. I would get it looked at if you're always with the sinus infections. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, if you look at overtraining signs, you know, loss of libido, uh, chronic injury, chronic illness, frequent recurring illness, respiratory illness, um, odd sleep patterns, um, just sleepy all through the day, lack of appetite, um, weight gain or weight loss can be a sign. Uh, which is sort of paradoxical, but, you know, a change from your normal. And so that's what you want to think about is this homeostasis. And the purpose of training is to work hard. I said this to a client last week, like, you're supposed to be sore. You're supposed to be tired. Like, that's the point. But not so far that you don't get back on top. Mm-hmm. Right? If the if, you're, if your happiness or your motivation just keeps going down and down and down and down and there's no, mm-hmm. no point that it's coming up, you got to be careful because if it doesn't come back up to the normal you know, when you resume training, when you get home or when the race season starts, then you're going to dive yourself into the ground. And that's where that June, July 1st burnout goes, right? So Yeah. And I mean, unless you're on like a multi-million dollar contract, it's not really worth it. Yeah. And Dan John, my favorite strength coach, um, he has a good thing. Coach that... Clance is going to hear that and be really upset oh, with you. Coach Clance is my favorite, like, Olympic, okay. uh, like, <laughs> high performance. Dan John's, like, more of a strength coach. This is so. turning into my, like, accidental Ellen's my favorite pro. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Twitter debate. Dan John talks about, there's a few things that Dan John says that sort of apply here anyhow, and I'll see if I can ramble myself back on. But the idea is that you do... The one I always talk about is the bus bench versus park bench workouts. People always want to do a bus bench workout, so they want to be worried about the time, and they're pacing back and forth, tapping their watch. You can't see me tapping my watch, but I'm looking at my watch and looking at Molly like, where is this bus? I need to get there faster. 
So these are the workouts where like you're drilling it and you're on your limit and you're vomiting and you're on the side of the trail and you come home and you can't even like do anything like your your significant other has to like help you in the door and like take your gloves off because you're shaking and so like depleted. So those you don't need to really do that often. Most people don't need to do those that often. Save that like I call it, like pulling the car off your baby, which is graphic, sorry, but save that. Like that's for Leadville. That's at Leadville, if you've come across the line and collapse, you've done a good job. Hopefully, you know, they have people there to save you and like catch you and bring you to the medical tent. Save that effort. The park bench workouts, again, this is a Dan John thing, but just do the work. You know, five by three, go hard, go a little harder every time, work on your pacing. You know, it should be hard. There's hard work. You're going to be sweating. You're going to be breathing hard. But don't fall over on the side of the trail. Be cool. Go home. Help your kids. Go for a hike. Be cool. And I think that's a good way for most people. You know, if you can't go out for coffee or go for wine with your significant other after a day of training on the bike at a training camp, you're just, you're going to, you're going to run into issue later. Yeah. I don't know if that was my original point. I think it was. Yeah. Um, And then my last thought on base camps and training uh, for the multi-sport athlete, do you hit one at a time, or if you're on like the base week, do you try to hit all three heavier in the case of triathlon? Like, I think you would definitely, there's a few ways you can periodize that. Um, usually you would pick a focus. Definitely that's the, the struggle with triathlon is that you're always going to have that. So um, I would recommend for those of you who are going to look into coaching and, and mentorship, the, a good start and the first reading that I'd assign you would be Joe Friel's new triathlon training book. Yeah, it's actually super good. quite good. And for anyone, whether you're interested in triathlon or running or any sort of sport, there's a lot of really good concepts in it for coaching generally, or athletes just wanting to know more. But what you want to do is basically if you're away and it's a, you're by an ocean, then I would block your swimming um, and do more swims than usual. So again, you might just increase the number of swims. If you're away and like running's really good, then increase your runs. If you're, you know, away and biking's good. And so you can sort of pick two is I think the general rule of thumb and just maintain the other one. And then the other thing you want to think about is are you blocking or, you know, if you're doing, we might call it a crash cycle, which I didn't want to get too much into, but if you're doing a, a, a training camp, you know, you're increasing something, you can, you can increase really, you shouldn't increase intensity and volume at the same time again that relates to the question of zone four and leadville you can't just go faster go for longer h- you can't just go harder more intense for longer that's not really an option so if you go away and you try and do a training camp and you are drilling it the entire camp but also riding for a long time that's a recipe for disaster you can do it i'm sure you'd survive but the intensity won't be sufficient the adaptation will be poor and you're not going to ride as far as you could. Um, so again, you want to pick if you're going to do a block of training to Molly's question about triathlon or, or any multi-sport, maybe you're doing OCR sort of camp, pick the things you're weak at. So for me, I would pick probably go away and do like a swimming, running camp, um, you know, and just maintain my cycling. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? So in March, yep. that would be probably what I should do, whether I can stick to that and not just ride my mountain bike. We'll see. Um, but that, that would be the strategy. So that's a good point though. Like sometimes we think about things more like that classic base phase. And that's how we sort of got into this question. I think was, you know, you, how do you do base as a time crunched athlete or in general, um, try backing up and just saying, you know, I have this week or this weekend and and I want to really focus on my training and get better. What if we thought about that as, you know, I keep flatting my rear tire on curbs or logs. Why don't you do a, real good focus on log hopping or bike skills or you know strength training or you know running go and get instruction sorry running running instruction but or swimming is what i meant to say the you know go and get a week-long crusher spend six hours in the pool but three of those hours are like super instructed drills and come away after your weekend off as just swimming's not an issue anymore mm-hmm. or you have like really good form that you can then build that volume onto. So I think that gets missed sometimes too is, you know, why not do a camp and focus on the technical aspects or, you know, the limiter of your thing versus just going away and riding moderately hard on your mountain bike like you always do. You know, more of what you always do isn't necessarily the best thing. Absolutely. So that's about an hour of rambling. Uh, um, yeah, there was definitely at least 15 minutes that were 
exclusively rambling. I don't know if the rambling. There was there was some good stuff there. Well, we apologize for any and all rambling, but we take none of it back. Follow up at our brand new email. <laughs> Info at consummateathlete.com. You can also just visit consummateathlete.com or tweet at us at Molly J. Herford and at Peter Glassford. Thank you, guys. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. Uh, to check out all of the show notes for this episode, you can head over to consummateathlete.com. And we would love to hear from you about what you thought about the podcast. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Molly J. Herford. And at Peter Glassford. And we would also love it if you would pop over to iTunes and subscribe to the podcast so you can tell every time a new episode, a new sport comes out. And if you would leave us a review, let us know how how you're liking it, how we're doing, if there's anything you'd like to hear more of. That would be amazing. And you can find us over on Facebook now, uh, facebook.com backslash consummate athlete. Thanks again for tuning in, and we will see you next time.